Hey guys, Bill Spadia here. Welcome back to the Speaking Podcast. We are rejoining our ongoing series called Hashtag Speaking COVID to share some facts to help you overcome the fear. Uh, honestly, it's been so difficult and challenging over the past 320 plus days uh, of the lockdown and the science is all over the place. And as you know, I have been trying to bring you guests that can shed some light on this, some experts in epidemiology, experts in the medical field. Today, we are rejoined by two of our favorites, Dr. Colleen Huber, who is one of America's top uh, oncologists. She is a naturopathic um, doctor and oncologist, and she has been featured in many books, uh, the, including America's Top Cancer Docs. Uh, she is practicing out in Tempe, Arizona. We're happy to have her and one of her research colleagues, uh, Boris, uh, Boris, I pronounce your name, Borovoy, is that correct? Yes, Boris Borovoy, who, uh, who not only is an expert in the field of public health, but has also written extensively about epidemiology. And today we're coming together because uh, the two have collaborated on a writing and a research and a peer-reviewed study that discusses specifically whether or not what we're going through is an actual pandemic or is it all about politics? So let's, uh, let's start with Dr. Huber. Doc, always good to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me again. Thank you, Bill. So, Doctor, let's, uh, let's get back to this uh, conversation. I, you know, I was struck by the title of your research paper, and I immediately called and said, hey, we got to get you back on the show. Basically, uh, you and Boris are challenging the premise of, of COVID-19 being a pandemic. So my first question is, was it a pandemic at one point and it now ceases to be, or are you challenging the entire definition? Well, we have, uh, we have some uh, indication that may have been a pandemic. Uh, the middle of April of 2020, because the CDC uh, showed uh, an enormous number of deaths uh, for COVID-19, and then that came down rather quickly and have stayed down. Uh, in other words, that uh, have pretty much uh, flattened, despite a lot of uh, media you know, stories to the contrary. Okay, so that the CDC said, yeah, in April, mid-April, April, week of April 11, week of April 18, we had a pandemic. However, with peak deaths from COVID and not so many deaths since then. However, we looked at obituaries in the United States. We looked at a, a obituary reporting service that gathers obituaries from uh, funeral homes all over the United States. And a couple of uh, contradictory things appeared. For example, uh, it shows that last April of 2020, when the CDC said there were maximum COVID deaths, uh, there really uh, weren't that many more deaths than usual. In fact, that was the sixth highest month in all of 2020. So it was a very typical month, according to the obituaries. Okay, not only that, but it showed that obituaries declined 18% from 2019 to 2020. Now, and what month was that? Doc, what month was that? Uh, April of 2020, uh, for the obituary reporting, it was only the sixth highest month of 2020. So it was pretty much in the middle of the range. It was pretty average. So let me understand this. So we do this for the cheap seats because I am trying to keep up with all these doctors that I've had on the show. Um, you know, that you, what you're saying is out of the months in 2020, April, which had the highest number of reported COVID deaths, 
was actually only the sixth highest month. So it was right in the middle as far as overall deaths. So even though we had these spiking numbers during uh, the weeks of April 11th and April 18th across the country, um, the reality is the overall number of deaths was not excessive. According to a reported obituaries, yes. And uh, in fact, uh, obituaries overall uh, came down 18% from 2019 to 2020. I have to ask, how is that consistent with a pandemic? So let me ask you this question. Let's just talk about deaths before we bring Boris in to talk about uh, the science uh, on the other side of this uh, with epidemiology, et cetera, and the definition, the World Health Organization, CDC, how they define these terms. Um, what, what do you say to someone who says, look, the CDC is now projecting 3.1 to 3.2 million deaths in the U.S. in 2020 compared to the year before where there were 2.85 or 2.9 million. They are estimating 300,000 additional deaths. What do you say to that report? Because we hear that on the news every night. I would have to ask for an audit. Uh, it is easy for the CDC to keep shoveling additional numbers, shoveling additional numbers, and they've shoved it all the way back several months. Uh, they are adding numbers still to last spring's deaths. Why weren't those numbers reported earlier? How do we know that there are no duplicates? One advantage of looking at obituaries is there is a real person behind each one. Behind each one, there's somebody with a name, very often a photo, a, an actual date of birth in a, a specific community in the United States, specific date of death. In other words, we have the vital statistics for every single one of those obituaries, not so for the CDC numbers. They can just throw on any numbers they like. So that's a, this is a fascinating thing. I didn't even really, this is a, a takeaway I didn't even expect. Let me ask you this. Uh, are you confident that most deaths do have an obituary? So somebody who, uh, we haven't heard about many deaths among homeless people when it comes to the pandemic and when it comes to COVID-19, um, but would you say that most deaths do have some public space on, uh, in the media? As far as well, I have, I have to admit that uh, obituaries are a little bit old fashioned. And uh, I don't think that every death is represented by an obituary. Uh, there's very often a cost involved. Uh, you know, if it's in a newspaper, it can be a few hundred dollars. And so that might be a challenge for families. Um, so not every death to be represented. Obituary, and it seems that uh, the ones that the funeral homes reported to the U.S. Obituary Service, uh, the United States Obituary Service, seem to be about in the range of 20 25 percent of the total number of deaths reported by the CDC. Um, so, you know, however, how do we know that these obituaries that were reported are not representative of the population of a whole, uh, as a whole, of the people who died in 2020? I don't know that they're not representative really. So um, in other words, when no evidence of a pandemic appears in obituaries and they in fact decline by 18%, and we do show the receipts there, we link actually to where it can be verified by anyone who, who goes and looks that that decline was in the neighborhood of 18%. And that's from 2019 to 2020? That's correct. Okay. So Boris, let me bring you in. Let me ask you, I mean, you're an expert in epidemiology. You've, you've got a master's in public health. You've, you've studied the biology, et cetera. What, what, is, uh, what is your take on this as far as the definition of a pandemic? And, and what should we conclude 
by the fact that numbers have been admittedly by some governments uh, padded to include COVID deaths. I mean, the state of Nevada, their public health department actually said any natural cause death, someone that dies of natural causes within 30 days of a positive COVID test would count as a COVID death. What do you, what is your takeaway from that? This is a very tricky area. First of all, uh, definition of pandemic is worldwide spread epidemic with uh, mortality within uh, normal healthy people, you know? And most of the mortality, most of casualty of COVID-19 was 96, 90, uh, pardon me, 94% was comorbidity. <laughs> Only 6% of healthy people were affected, and those healthy people obviously were taking enormous viral load. And there is interesting thing, actually. They are nurses and doctors doing unnecessary procedure of, you know, uh, of uh, ventilation. You know, they just make the just hole right there. You know, and when you do this the whole right there, I'm just trying to simplify my English. So you automatically receive. So you're, you're saying people were intubated prematurely? Intubated, yes, correct. And it was just like, you know, they in the process, doctors and nurses were contaminated with the enormous uh, quadrillion, quadrillion numbers of viral particles you know they just so so let me ask you then what's what's the purpose of this study what what are you what are you presenting in this study and what do you hope to change policy wise this is really tricky thing you know if you have epidemic worldwide and only six percent of healthy only six percent of casual casualty of them right healthy people it's not just even it's it's not pandemic you know it's endemic it's endemical process which means we have certain area we have certain patients just affected by this we have certain type of people with certain type of comorbidity affected by this and this is in initially maybe somewhat somehow just because it was thank you china for worldwide spread it was somewhat resembling pandemia in my opinion you know it peaked in april may and in july it was endemical and it was mostly you know going not really good as pandemic process so, so i understand the world health organization actually changed their definition of a pandemic prior to this this is not even pandemic pandemic light right now you know it's not even that because we have we fluttered the curve in july basically i mean so morbidity so curve. doc uh, dr huber let me bring you back in um, your your thoughts on this i mean you've got uh, so your research colleague is basically saying that the curve was flattened between April and May. So here we are, and as of this recording, we are on day 327 of 15 days to stop the spread. What is your take from a policy perspective from doing this research to show that actually the excess deaths are, are um, it's hard to really pin that down? 
Yes, exactly right. And that is because um, doctors have been encouraged to uh, code all deaths that uh, have any involvement, uh, as uh, you said, with the, uh, with the COVID test um, as, as being a COVID death, even if it was deaths from other causes, which is why we've seen the flu disappear. Flu seems to be gone since March 12th of 2020. Uh, not only that, uh, Alzheimer's deaths are, done, are down and many other causes, common causes of deaths are down as uh, COVID deaths have now, uh, you know, been claimed to be the, the cause of death of so many people. Uh, even with the numbers that were given uh, by the CDC, uh, it still appears to be for 2020, um, maybe about 14% of all uh, deaths. However, um, there's another problem, and that is that the PCR test is very, very flawed. We learned one hour after Joe Biden's inauguration that the World Health Organization said something that many of us doctors and scientists have been saying for almost a year. That is that the PCR uh, quote test unquote, which is really a manufacturing technique, uh, not a test at all uh, for infectious disease. Anyway, that that's been run at too many cycles and that the more you run those cycles, uh, the less likely you are to be detecting actual infectious viral load. Uh, can I ask you, can I ask you, uh, so I understand that they, mm. they feel like after 33 cycles, they, they're not detecting a live virus any longer. And the FDA was saying that, that laboratories needed to run 40 cycles. So we already knew a lot of the test numbers were bloated. And then the World Health Organization came out and said as much. That said, what do you mean it was a manufacturing test? Can you help um, explain to the person who's not a scientist what these cycles are? Are we putting cells in a centrifuge? What, what is actually happening? You know? Well, uh, yes, the, the inventor of this technique, uh, Carrie Mullis, PhD, um, who actually won a Nobel Prize for it, but unfortunately passed away in August 2019 and can no longer guide the world on the use of his technique. Uh, that was for reproducing uh, nucleic acid sequences, you know, uh, like the, the little bits and pieces, the chains that make up uh, the RNA or the DNA. It could be used for either. And uh, so what is happening when a laboratory runs it at all these cycles? You know, you mentioned 35 or 30s and the 40s. Uh, they keep running it and running it and running it to produce a large number of this uh, genetic material. After a certain point, Everybody tests positive. Look, if you run that test at 60 cycles, all of us will test positive. Uh, if you run it at only uh, 10 cycles, all of us will probably test negative. So what did they do? They ran it at more cycles than the inventor of it uh, suggested. He said, if you run it at 35 to 40 cycles, you can quote, you can find almost anything in anybody. By the way, wow. uh, I, I did get kicked off of Twitter once for saying that very thing. And then the yeah. World Health Organization came out and said it. But they didn't. So, Doc, let, let's. No, of course not. The, the <laughs> fix was in for sure. You said it too early. You should have waited until Biden was out of was in office. I um, see. Uh, you know, and not to be political about it, but, but um, tell me again, let's just go back to what you and Boris have concluded as far as a pandemic is concerned. Um, you know, I, I look at this, and I want to get your take as a doc. That, that when we were told 15 days to stop the spread, and I have been counting since President Trump came on the air March 16th and said, we're gonna, we're gonna pause for 
15 days to stop the spread. And then we're going to be back with our families and our churches by Easter. So the question is, um, what happened? I mean, here we are. There was never a health crisis to the level that we were told by politicians. We never ran out of beds. We never ran out of, of staff to treat the sick. We never ran out of medicine, never ran out of ventilators. None of those things materialized. But here we are. Um, and by the time this airs, it'll be somewhere in the day 340 or so of 15 to stop the spread. How does your research help educate people to push back on this? We want people to look at, oh, I'm sorry. Do you want Boris to answer? Go ahead, Boris. No, both of you. So let's start with Boris. First of all, first of all, there is objective actually things about pandemic. Virus should be contagious enough, Okay should be morbid enough and should be deadly enough to consider pandemic. So three major factors, okay? What was the second one? Contagious. Contingency, morbidity, mortality. Morbidity Contag and mortality. What's the difference between morbidity and mortality? Uh, that's tricky question. First, it's got to be contagious, right? So person right. got sick. But morbidity showing how sick it is. So if person got heavy sick, morbidity is high, toxicity, you know, toxicity, whatever. Mortality is death numbers. You actually so die. Okay. By any means, by any means, there is only one, only one factor, only one parameter is really high. Contagious. contagious. Yeah. yeah. It's very contagious. But even on uh, it's really, you can check this, even on a diamond princess, it was 20% of people who got actually sick of this. From this 20%, only 5% got seriously ill. And as far as I remember, it was a couple of deaths on a whole cruise. And this is it, you know? And this is just like very close space. People just really tightly sitting near each other. You know, conditioner system and everything works against any kind of health and in any kind of hygiene. But here we are. And by the way, it was people right in a dangerous category. You know, it was uh, over 60. Many of them got diabetes. Many of them got them, uh, heart problems, et cetera, et cetera. So we see real experiment. And after this experiment, sorry, I cannot buy the whole theory about the bad virus. So, Boris, let me ask you, you, you are a product of, of the old Soviet Union, uh, having grown up there, having studied there. So you, you dealt with communism and government propaganda firsthand. Well, just in, in 30 seconds or less, you can just t tell me what parallels do you see with how the media today, because people have attacked me. I have suggested that perhaps we need a certification for journalists like we do real estate professionals, doctors, etc. I don't know why journalists are able to say whatever they want and call it fact and there is no accountability whatsoever. Um, people have said, no, that's a fascist idea. That's what the communists did, state-run media. And I said, no, accountability is not government-run. What similarities have you seen with between Pravda and the things that would come out of the government and people were just told this is how you're supposed to think? Do you see any similarities today in our media? I see quite opposite thing. You know what socialism means? Socialism means 
government-owned corporations. In our case, we have corporations on government and media. So Soviet Union, it was communist party of Soviet Union, okay, who just owns literally everything and people inside this country. Right now, what I see, this is uh, several numbers of big corporations interconnected in between, interchangeable. They have the same actually owners, the same, you know, shareholders, basically about uh, 10,000, same called, maybe less, you know, who just govern this country through media and through puppets in the government. This is it. And I'm not afraid to do that. Boris, that That's, is, uh, I've never heard anyone. Difference actually, because you know what, believe or not, Communistic Party of Soviet Union care about people because they know they cannot isolate themselves from the people. And this guys, big tech, big corp and everything, they think they can be isolated from the simpletons and therefore they don't care about them whatsoever. Wow. Boris, I've not heard anyone articulate that. Let me, let, let me stop you there and let me go back to uh, Dr. Huber. Doc, um, that is uh, a fascinating point that Boris just made that communism could not isolate from people, they were the people. So there was a caring aspect to it. Here, big corporate, big tech, they are isolated from the people. We saw this actually, uh, we saw what Boris said played out at the inauguration where we were told to be fearful of an insurrection. So 25,000 troops had to keep the people from the people's house and witnessing the people's business. So we've seen this play out. I haven't heard it articulated quite that way. I'm gonna draw uh, attention to that when I write the article, but let's go back quickly uh, in the few minutes I have left. I want you to doc, if you can just, uh, summarize your findings in this study and what should people take away? And here's where I'm driving at. You're talking to a patient, someone who has cancer, someone that needs to get their regular treatment, but their family's scared to death of COVID. And you need to empower this person to say to their family, guys, this is not the biggest problem in the world right now. What talking points do you give that person to stand up to for logic? Well, I think the U.S. CARES Act uh, and its $175 billion has found its way into a lot of pockets. And so there's a lot of cooperation with the whole COVID extravaganza. Now, it's very much a very big show that you are supposed to be scared and you're supposed to be so scared that you should put a mask over your breathing apparatus and, and inhibit your own breathing and cause bodily harm to yourself in doing so. And so many people have swallowed this because they've been told day after day that they must be fearful. And here's why you must be fearful. Look at all these people who are sick and look at all these people who are dead. Uh, so, however, However, the people who have planned this and are carrying it out missed turning over a couple little stones. And thanks to uh, Boris's brilliance, really, he, uh, he said, wait a minute, what about the sales of medical oxygen? I said, oh, wow, that's a great idea. Let's go look. So, okay, we go to Wall Street, earnings statements for the companies who are the biggest distributors of medical oxygen. What did we find? That the sales of medical oxygen of the biggest distributors actually declined in 2020. Now, let me ask you, Bill, if this pandemic is of a severe acute respiratory syndrome, okay, then why wasn't more medical oxygen used or at least 
you know, but, but why was there actually a decline in the sales of medical oxygen and its distribution uh, among the three largest companies? It makes no sense whatsoever. Okay, so then um, Boris says, okay, how about if we look at the medical supplies in general, you know, IV poles, syringes, of IV fluids, these should all be increased. But you know what we found? We found that in the largest distributors of all of these, um, uh, these sales just continued the same trajectory pretty much. Uh, actually, it just kind of tapered off and it wasn't as strong a trajectory as the last five years. The last one year was not as strong an increase as the last five years. In other words, they're also no evidence of pandemic, not either in oxygen sales, nor in uh, sales wow. of medical equipment in general. Now, if we know from uh, social media that hashtag film your hospital uh, came up with some very, very empty hospitals. And I know from having worked in hospitals, uh, they usually don't look that empty. However, all through 2020, people were posting video footage of empty hospitals. So uh, I think the, the findings of the medical oxygen sales being lower and the not, no change really in the trajectory of medical supplies in general is consistent with that. So let me just recap if I can to make sure I understand this uh, as, as just an average person not you know, lacking the medical education that you, uh, you both have um, and you as a practicing doctor treating cancer patients on a regular basis as the way you make your living. Uh, number one, medical supply sales flat throughout the entire pandemic. Number two, oxygen suppliers, medical oxygen suppliers in the height of a of a a severe acute respiratory virus, sales actually declined. Obituaries year over year actually declined, um, which would indicate to you, as I understand, that uh, essentially deaths overall were flat, if not recategorized as something that, um, uh, that, that called it COVID, but it was so mixed in with so many other deaths because the flu deaths are gone. Alzheimer's deaths are are. Uh, declining. Uh, I just wanted yep. to understand that. And then, and then the capstone on this, you know, it's almost the visual with the first responders at these hospitals, all competing on TikTok for dance moves to get the latest viral video uh, showing clearly that many of these hospitals are in fact empty. Last point I'm going to ask you uh, before I wrap up and this doc, I want to address this uh, to you that, that I have said this before that ICU units are typically at a 75 to 80% capacity because they're expensive to maintain. So they do not keep hundreds of ICU uh, units available for any given time. They kind of know what to expect. They were never overwhelmed to the point where there were no ICU beds. We never got to the point where people had to share ventilators. We just simply never got there, even in the height of the pandemic and to give the devil its due to use that word for April and May, um, that never happened. So if you could just explain real quick as a doctor, uh, am I right to say that hospitals are typically 70 to 80% full, that they don't operate empty? That's the whole point? Um, yes, my understanding is uh, that's about right. And, and you, you I'm sure you remember that uh, in New York City, in the epicenter uh, last spring, uh, the Javits Center was set up as a field hospital, mm -hmm. Central Park as well, but it wasn't used. So they were d quickly dismantled because uh, they weren't needed, weren't used. Seven patients, exactly seven patients. It was used, but for seven patients. 
Who, with yep. the Javits Center? Yep. Wow. Well, I understand the Navy hospital ship Comfort had 100 patients. None of them were COVID patients, however. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, I um, look. I want to just commend both of you on this uh, very uh, well done research paper. I, I will do my best to summarize in my article about it, and uh, and of course, I want to have you both back on. This is an ongoing conversation. I consider you both uh, friends in this fight for uh, facts over fear, and we need facts to finally get into the heads of the American people. I'm going to spend tonight digesting your point, Boris, about. Uh, communism had some need to actually at least talk about caring for people because they could not isolate. They were the people. Uh, whereas the elites today have built walls and towers and put tanks and armed men between them and the people. Very interesting point uh, that, uh, that does need a little more exploration, I think, because uh, to that point, the Soviet elites eventually did put the tanks and the troops in between them and the people. But I, I, I understand your point. Um, and I think there's a book in the making there for you at some point. And, and Dr. Huber, always great to talk to you. I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you pointed out in the beginning this whole idea of being a naturopathic um, uh, oncologist is a very important point because you are a medical doctor. And people who want to come in and attack the different nuances of your belief that people's uh, own uh, healing an immune system can actually be used to fight things like cancer, et cetera. Uh, I think that it, you, you get a bad rap. And hopefully if I can do anything to uh, shed some light on this very important part of medicine that, uh, that I think is underrepresented because you don't have the, uh, the lobbyists that Big Pharma has. No lobbyists. Uh, actually, uh, well, occasionally, yes. Uh, I, I take that back. There are sometimes lobbyists when uh, the question comes up before legislatures. Uh, 20 states license right. us, 30 do not. So, Can you, just in uh, just 30 seconds or less, just explain the difference between a naturopathic physician, oncologist versus um, a, a, another medical doctor? What's the main difference? Oh, yes, absolutely. So I am a naturopathic medical doctor, but that is not the same as medical doctor. Uh, these are separate medical schools. We are required to have twice the number of courses and twice the number of classroom hours. The reason is that we are licensed to practice the conventional medicine. Uh, we prescribe pharmaceuticals when necessary. We order lab tests. So we order imaging. We do physical exams. You know, all of uh, what would be expected in, in a primary care office. However, um, we also have the naturopathic education. So there are six successive courses in botanical medicine, six successive courses in nutrition. And it just so happens so much. You're a medical doctor plus then. Oh, no, let me clarify. It's naturopathic medical doctor specifically. That is, I cannot call myself a medical doctor because that would imply a different medical school. Uh, but in my case, it's even more complex because I transferred from a conventional medical program to a naturopathic program. So anyway, uh, sorry to comment. What's the, the, what's the key to it, though? Is it, is it natural healing? Is it holistic? What, what's, the, what's the key? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. So in other words, when looking at the whole set of tools for treatment, I'm not only looking at pharmaceuticals or surgery. Uh, I don't do any surgery. Don't trust me with a scalpel. Anyway, uh, so uh, 
you know, we're not only looking at that, but we're also looking at the natural world. In other words, what is available from nutrition? Very often I'm thinking about what is available from exercise. Uh, I had actually a husband and wife come in with the same dysfunction yesterday, uh, tight quadriceps muscles, and I gave them specific exercises. I had somebody the day before with um, uh, carpal tunnel. So I gave her a specific carpal tunnel exercise. So I'm very often thinking of exercises that can help uh, straighten out uh, problems uh, going on in the body. So anyway, physical medicine, nutrition, botanical medicine, these are all cornerstones of naturopathic practice. And, and these are the first tools I think of before going to a pharmaceutical. Although so just so I'm saying it right, it's naturopathic. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's fine. No, you did no, no, I wish you had cor corrected me before. So see that even I can, I can learn something every podcast. Uh, Dr. Hubert, thank you. Boris, thank you. I appreciate you both. We will have you back on again. Uh, soon. Just real quick, plug your website. Where do people go to find your uh, extensive research if they want to learn more? It's on Primary Doctor Medical Journal, which is pdmj.org. PDMJ. PDMJ.org. Thank you. Thank you both. Take care now. Thank you, Bill. You too.